In this edition of the Futures Work podcast, Harry sat down with Danny Blanchflower to discuss his new book, Not Working, Where Have All the Good Jobs Gone? Recorded live at the Bristol Festival Ideas, Harry started the conversation by asking, why this book and why now? This book's about failure. Um, This book's about um, central banks uh, missing the biggest recession in 100 years and then getting recovery wrong. And it's about people being hurt by those mistakes. So this is about, when I talk about where have all the good jobs gone, this is about um, work. It's especially about work, but it's about... um, Um, people not understanding that when you have a great financial crisis, this is really bad. So let's just look back. If you look back at the 1929 crash, what followed that? Well, the Great Depression followed that. And this great crash, done in 2008 and 9, people on my committee and people around the world missed it. Uh, and And then they kind of sat back, imposed austerity, and that just hurt ordinary people. And I and I practice what I call the economics of walking about, and a lot of it is actually going out and doing things like this for me talking and listening, uh, and essentially what you see with that is that people understand that the policymakers don't, and in a sense the worry that I have and had was that if people feel bad in a recovery, think about how they're going to feel when we get to the end of the recovery, and I'm afraid to tell you that's kind of where we are um, in the in the U.S. Um, in June of this year, so this month, the recovery became the longest ever. And it looks like around the world that Trump has triggered um, a recession. China's slowing, um, Germany's slowing, the UK looks like it's slowing. Brexit hasn't helped that. Uh, and the United States is slowing because the Fed wrongly raised rates. And basically assumed that all was going well and that people were doing just fine because we were at full employment. And I'm a labour economist. I look at the data, and the data says something quite different. And the data says if you were at full employment, people would be feeling great. And I'm just going to let me just give you a little story. So, beverage, the famous beverage in 1943, um, Churchill said, I want to try and think about what the world's going to look like when the war's over and the men and women come back from war and think about what's full employment about. So, beverage wrote a book in 1944, it's called, it's basically about full employment in a free society. And he said, I think full employment is about 3%. About 10 years later, he actually went back and looked at it and rewrote it and said, well, Keynes wrote to me. It's always good if Keynes wrote to you. (laughs) Keynes wrote to him and said, actually, your 3% unemployment rate looks too high, but let's try it. And he said, we tried it. And what we found was that actually unemployment from 1948 to 1960 averaged 1.5%. And my story is, well, why not again? It turns out we can actually do that again. Uh, and to be at full employment, I'm just going to sort of think about it. So people keep saying we're at full employment, but what Beveridge says is when you're at full employment, just think in your head what this means. When you're at full employment, he says people are standing by. They're standing by waiting for job offers to come in. There's lots of job offers coming in. You're, you're unemployed from your old job and your old job comes back again. And people are offering you, are offering you um, decent jobs at decent salaries. That's what happens. The balance of power shifts from firms to workers. And central banks around the world want us to believe that that's where we are. So this book holds up my hand, I hold up my hand and I say, that ain't how it is. So this is a, the world's not like that. We're not at full employment. People are hurting. The reason they voted for Brexit and Trump, whatever, for whatever reason, people are hurting. I think that's, I mean, we can talk about all sorts of things. But I think it's because people are hurting. And policymakers have missed it. And now, unfortunately, 
we're at a turn down, uh, and I think so. That's the reason for writing it. But I, I mean, a lot of the times I do. I want to hear what people have to say. Am I right? Am I wrong? And um, we are we at full employment? Is everyone doing great? And I think the answer is, my economics of walking about says not. So that's why I wrote it. I wrote it to try and say, let's think again, folks. There you go. That's a that's a pretty ambitious sort of setup. Well, we'll have, we'll have time at the end to hear yeah, from your own yeah, economics of walking about and see if anything you uh, you've you've seen uh, differs from what Danny has. I mean, the government at the moment are saying that we, you know, they've got they've set a recent record low in in, in unemployment. Um, what, in your opinion, kind of lies behind that? How impressed should we be with with these claims that we often hear from the from the lectern in, in Parliament? So that's a good that's a good way to start it. So if you say we're at really low levels of unemployment and everybody's doing great, we should all celebrate. So that's the sort of official position. Well, it turns out that. Um, uh, Lots of people actually, even though we have low levels of unemployment, the first thing we see is lots of people have crummy jobs. And a big deal is lots of people have jobs where they'd like more hours. And it turns out that's a really, a really big deal. But let's just try this one. And I think this is really important. If we look at what economists call real, he and I talk about real wages. What we mean by that is take your wage and work out what you can buy with it, right? So what is your pay packet buy today? Real wages in the UK are 5.5%. We have new data today out. Today, real wages are 5.5% below what they were in 2008. Say it again. 5.5% below what they were in 2008. So the government says we're at full employment, folks. We're doing great. Um, well, turns out we're not because lots of people would like more hours. Um, so you're on the minimum wage. People say, oh, we raised the minimum wage. That's great. Well, the problem is that you'd like 40 hours and you get 20 so yeah, you're paid the minimum wage, but you don't have enough hours to feed yourself. Um, so that's the answer. So the story we're at full employment is really, again, the economics of walking about. Is that true? Have you never had it so good? I remember um, the, the story about, I mean, how many people here have never had it so good? Right, yes. don't put their hand up. <laughs> if everybody put their hand up, I was in trouble. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so I think that's complete. Um, let's put it in economic terms. That's hogwash. We're not. We're not at great times. The unemployment rate, it turns out, Past 2008, it's become a very poor indicator of where we are. Um, and in fact, what we've seen, just as an example, we have data on rising levels of depression, rising levels of anxiety, all sorts of things which say people feel isolated, they feel insecure. So I think it's really um, ridiculous on the part of the government to just say how great everything is when clearly that's not what we see. What about underemployment then? Yeah. This is something that... You know, policymakers, or at least on the government side, are much less, are much more reluctant to talk about as a, as a part of that wider labour market picture. But what what are some of the forms that takes? Well, the the first thing, there's, there's I guess there's three ways we sort of measure it. The simplest, I mean, the first thing, America, the United, the United States, and the United Kingdom have some sorts of differences in the labour market. But the big thing that's common to all of them is weak wage growth. Wages haven't gone back to where they were. And this underemployment phenomenon. So this is about literally people saying, I would like more hours than the hours that I have. It comes out sometimes in its simplest form when people say, I have a part-time job and I'd like a full-time job. But it's not just that because some people are happy to be part-time. They've got 15 hours, but they'd like 20. So it's that. So that's the first thing. People want more hours and particularly young people and others have part-time jobs and they'd like full-time jobs. But there's another bit to it. Think of a pyramid. There's a job pyramid. You start at the bottom and you work up. 
Um, essentially, what you see in a recession is people start lower down the job pyramid than they would in normal times. So people have got a degree, end up doing jobs that are lower than a degree, and eventually you push people out at the bottom. In good times, um, people rise. In the book, I talk about TV Junction. In 1975, when the unemployment was actually below what it is now, um, I was a student, and I got a job in Tiverton, Tiverton Junction in Devon. And I got hired by a pal of mine who was working for Tarmac. And I was hired as a chain boy. But what was telling about it is there was such a shortage of laborers to go work on the, on the M5 that I was paid at laborers' rates. So I actually, a great skill, you could imagine, carrying a chain, but not quite. But I, so I actually entered the job pyramid higher up than I should have done. So when times are good, right, people who've got, who've got O levels or just you know, left, left school without very many qualifications, get to enter that job market higher up. And I would take an indicator of the fact that we're at full employment with evidence that people are starting to do that. Are they hiring, are they hiring the lowest of the low at higher rates than, the, than in the past? So there's a chapter in there called Tivy Junction, but that was, that was my story about, you know, you know, you can imagine I didn't have a lot of skills, but I, I, so I, I used to carry the theodolite for the surveyor and be the guy who put the marks in. These days you'd probably get shot because they were marking out where the cut was coming and they were going to cut out the grass and put in... Anyway, but that's TV Junction. So I, so I take that as an indicator that people are still... They're still struggling to get jobs commensurate with their qualifications. And if so just think, if you were at full employment, there's a shortage of labour, firms would have to start pushing people up and they're not. So I always say that to the government. How, where's the evidence of that? And there's none. Okay, so, I mean, un unemployment, one other thing we've seen in the UK is a rise in, in self-employment, well, that particular kind of self-employment without employees. So, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, I mean, what do you make of that, 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 that increase as part yeah. of that change in employment picture? Well, I've written a lot of stuff about self-employment. There's two, only two countries in the world recently have seen a rise in self-employment. So that's um, the, the UK and the Netherlands. So I live in the United States, but I spend a lot of time coming back and forth to Britain. If you go to the United States, self-employment rates have declined every year for the last 50. Um, and if you think of development, think about a, a less developed country, Uganda or Kenya or Brazil or something. So what do you see? As the country develops, People move from the land to the city. And they move from the land from self-employment to jobs in the city. In some sense, a declining self-employment rate is actually associated with growth and wealth. So it's not absolutely clear. I mean, I wrote a paper some years ago. It was called, More Self-Employment May Not Be Better. Well, it probably turns out that way. So the latest data that came out today, the government celebrated that there was an increase in employment. Well, it turns out every one of the increase was in self-employment. Go back to my point. Well, that may or may not be good. I mean, it, may be, it may be that if you think people failed at unemployment, they went to some benefit and the government said, right, I'll put you on self-employment because it's, you know, we'll, we'll put you in there. So it's actually fragile, uh, may well be low paid. And what we've seen, the, the work from the Resolution Foundation I'm going to tomorrow, has shown that since 2008, the earnings of the self-employed have fallen in real terms by about 25%. It's not obvious to me that you want to encourage self-employment. Um, not, not obvious at all, especially as basically every other advanced country, Germany, Sweden, Denmark, the United States, Canada, Australia, Japan, 
has seen a declining rate. So it's not obvious that that's a good thing. I mean, it may be better to be in self-employment than it is to be I mean, doing nothing. But in the end, the problem with self-employment is there's a really, really high failure rate. And that may be um, a big deal going forward. So it's not obvious to me that the rise in self-employment in the UK is a, a big deal. I mean, we're talking 15% in the US, in the UK, against about 6 in the United States. So it's not obvious to me that this is a really good thing. Uh, and down the road, if the economy slows, guess who's going to go? Who's going to go under first? It's going to be these folk. So when the when the downturn comes, the worry is what what cushion do they have? Maybe they don't, they maybe they're not entitled to certain benefits, but they may well end up losing their job, their house, their marriage. And all sorts of stuff. So this is a really self-employment is a really big deal because you, how do you get the money to run it? It may not last, and that, so I'm not I'm not convinced that this is a, a great thing. And if anything, a lower self-employment rate is better. I mean, does everyone get it that development's really? You could think of development. So a very undeveloped country, as you move from agriculture, think everybody in agriculture is self-employed, right? So then you start to move. So advancing a society means that more and more people start to move to being an employee, set up firms and so on. So so essentially development is a slowing self-employment rate. So for the UK, that's probably not good. Mm. Anyway, thank you. But some of those self-employed people may be the falsely self-employed mm -hmm. um, working in the gig or platform mm -hmm. economy. What do you make of the rise of, of that? Is it, mm -hmm. is, it, is it a new frontier in employment relations or well, is it going to be something that we could compare with the past? Yeah, I mean, I think, let's, let's think about these zero hours contracts. People say, oh, some people like them. Okay, I haven't met anybody, but let's go with assuming, <laughs> assuming they think it's a great idea that on Sunday, you've no idea how many hours you're going to work this week. You don't know which time. I mean, I think, imagine it's my daughter with kids. Right. So on a Sunday night, you don't know which day you're going to work, how many hours you're going to work, what time it is. Brilliant. Sounds excellent. I'd love it. Well, guess what? As you move to self-employment, guess what? The balance of, sorry, you move to full employment. The balance between workers and, and firms changes. And as labor becomes more scarce, guess what the zero-hour contract person does? Right, as you so, I think that is an indicator. It's come down a little bit, but this is this is this is horrible work. Um, you don't know what day you're going to work. You don't know what time you're going to work. How can you plan for things? How can you take out a mortgage? How can you pay for childcare for your kids when you don't even know when you're working or what your income is this week? I mean, we we as a society shouldn't let that. I mean, we we as a society now understand that people care perhaps more about security, safety than they do about a little pay raise. So if you put these people on contracts that are just despicable, I think they're despicable. So the people who say they like them, well, I'll take them off them and give them a nicer contract. So let, you know, they'll be better off. So even the ones who like them, I can make better off. And the ones who don't like them, we can make them better off too. So I don't think that would exist if the balance of power shifted towards... I mean, it, it just sounds... In an advanced society like the UK, we're going to be people contracts like that. The, the Victorians realised that that was pretty bad, so I think I think that gig economy thing is all very well, but if you change the balance and you move to full employment, that people care about security. If you offer them more security, they're going to take it. They'll take this gig job because it's the only job they can get. But if you offer them more security, people are going to feel happier. Mm. So I like that. <laughs> I see nodding. It's pretty hard to say that's not a great idea, right? 
what do you make of the the, the attempts to kind of use um, legal um, methods to try to regulate the gig economy, for instance? So a lot of this yeah. comes down to quite fine distinctions between work and status. Um, um, I mean, I think so. I give you. I, I do a lot of work as an expert in America. I go out and I'm an expert. So I was on a case once where there was a, a pretty bad accident. Actually, it was a it was a, a, a company that was delivering books. But anyway, I won't say that. In America, so basically, what happened was that they they made these people self-employed, right? And they were delivering books, and every day they'd go to the firm, and the firm would give them books and say, "Go and deliver the here and there." And basically, the the driver of the of the truck mowed down a guy on a motorcycle and did some nasty stuff to him. So his attorneys are trying to sue him, and the attorneys think, hmm, "This guy who's driving the truck worth about you know five quid," but the firm that's sending him there, he says he's self-employed, but are they really self-employed? So the case was actually exactly this. And the court ruled that the firm was just sort of tricking people and was just trying to get out of its responsibilities. And because they set, they told him every day, this is what you're going to do, this is where you're going to go, put the stuff on your truck. So it turns out the, the case, and we're increasingly seeing these legal moves, the case ruled that the... Um, the person driving the truck was not self-employed at all, even though he was doing that. And in America, the IRS has gone after people for that. And basically then um, the, the big deep pockets was now liable, right? Because they tried to, tried to separate their own liability out. And now a settlement was made, which you can imagine was a little bit more than the settlement of the guy who was self-employed driving his truck. So a lot of it is actually about firms wanted to minimize their liability. But if t- good times come, workers say, I'm not doing that. So there's a good example, uh, and the settlement was was large because the, the now the now the company didn't dispute that it had happened. It had tried to get out of it by saying they don't work for me, nothing to do with me, and it, the truth was it was. So there you can see legal, and we're seeing increasing legal things saying you are liable. Um, in good times, in good times, you wouldn't be able to do that. Mm-hmm. When there's insecure employment, firms can say, you want to come work for me, you got to do it like this and we'll do it for cheap, and we're not going to take legal responsibility for it. So as I say, I think as an indicator, as we move to full employment, that that changes. And I don't think it's a... I mean, it's better than nothing, but these people were being exploited. And and in America, they didn't get... They didn't get health insurance. That was the big thing. The firm didn't have to pay them health insurance. Gentleman has a question. Can I take his question? If you like, yeah. I mean, I'm self-employed, but I'm I'm at a very secure end of self yeah, employment. You know, so that's fine. Works, it's that's fine. Itself. But the point you talked about there, that case in America, is, is, the, is the new point, really. Because um, <laughs> you're either employed or you're not employed. Yeah, and right. if, you're, if, you're, if you're told what to do, right. that's a definition of being employed. Uh, you're an employee. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah, employee. Exactly. So, you, so if so you're a self employed, you set your own schedule. But the distinction you made, you, know, you talked about the IRS coming down. Mm-hmm. Do you think the IRS has got more teeth than the uh, revenue and customs has got in this country? I mean, it's difficult. Losing, it's a difficult one, tax, isn't it? It's a, it's a difficult one, and what's happened is that they've taken money away from inspectors and so on. Yeah. I mean, it's. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, but we, we're in agreement that the, 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 there's an issue here. And he asked me the question about legal things. There is an issue, and we're seeing increasingly people put in insecure things because the firms can get away with it. There's yeah. certainly that, and I gave you the case, exactly that case. But, so you, I mean, the other thing is the secure employment is, 
is, is there is secure self-employment, especially when self-employed have got employees and so on, and it's a great thing to do. And in fact, if you look at the distribution of income from self-employment, people make much, I mean, the successful ones, of course, make much, much more. But the other thing is that, so, I, so I'm, an, I, I, I'm a data person. One of the things that, I, that you have with self-employment is that, um, take wage income, right? Everybody's got a positive wage income. It's some number above zero. The problem we have with, with self-employed people is that many, many of them have negative incomes. Like, what do you, what's a, they make losses, and this is all a bit weird, but no, no, I'm happy to talk more about it. Let's go on, but we're, we're agreeing, and I think it's a big issue, and I know about it. <laughs> I mean, actually, the UK government got interested in the yeah. topic of self-employment because yeah. of national assurance and yeah. the attempts to reform that, yeah. to equalise, to stop firms using false self-employment, partly, you know, partly as a result of those differentials in national insurance. And, and in so, some ways, secure, real self-employed people care about it because it's having an impact on them, and they say, you know, we, we're doing it properly our way, and we want that, and then this other stuff is not helpful, right? So, it, so the self-employed people themselves want this to be sorted. Go, sorry. Um, I mean, there's the tax man, there's the there's yeah. the legal system. Yeah. Um, I mean, one other thing we've seen recently in this kind of new Wild West economy and new forms of worker organisation or ways of striking back and, and, and mobilising. So in Bristol was a hotbed of the, the recent Deliveroo um, strikes. So if, if anyone relies upon uh, Deliveroo to bring them their breakfast uh, in, in the morning, which some of my neighbours uh, uh, do, then you might have had some disruption then. Um, but what... What do you think of the possibilities of I mean, one thing that, that we had in previous um, economies that we don't see now is widespread trade union membership and that type of thing. You've written widely on this in, in, in the past. What kind of difference would that make and what are the possibilities of, of new forms of worker representation and organisation in this, in this new terrain? Well, it's, it's pretty tough in this terrain. I mean, you can, you can look back... Um, and think about what what ultimately destroyed, not destroyed, but had a really big negative impact on unions. And the answer is globalization. The ability of a union to form together and maybe perhaps raise the price was limited because the firm could then go and buy it from China or other or other places. So this global these global forces were a big deal. Um, America, where I where I live. Um, unions are pretty strong in the public sector, and I do a lot of stuff in the city of Chicago and with, um, with school teachers, and all the school teachers are unionized and the police are unionized, same in New York City. So, so there is that. Um, one of the things I think, um, so this famous work was written, you may remember, Freeman and Medoff. This famous book is called What the Unions Do. And I think there were two parts to it. They talked about the monopoly face they called it parts of unions. So unions raise wages. Okay, that's fine. They can do that. That's one part of what they do. But the other question is unions represent what they call voice. Unions can have a really positive effect on productivity and could do things like, well, they could buy health, they could buy life insurance cheaper for you. They could buy car insurance. They could do all kinds of stuff as, in a sense as a friendly society. And I think the evidence around the world is that unions probably emphasize that I can raise your wages a lot, rather more than this voice aspect. And in the United States, what happened was the, is the employers went after them. And if the unions, I think, emphasize this voice face, but it's very difficult because you're in a global climate where um, you know, the ability of unions to bargain in particular sectors is limited. Think about the car sector right now. Um, cars in the UK, we've got bridge end plants, you've got 
from a big deal in, in, in UK autos. In the US, no longer are people making large sums of money as they did in the past. There are plants in the US that were work, union plants, workers were making, I'll make it up, 75 bucks an hour. And the, and the, and the, uh, and the employer said, we're going to furlough this plant. We're going to put you all on layoff, close the plant and say, you want to come back? We'll pay you 15 bucks an hour. You want to come back? And they said, sure. And they came back at 15 bucks an hour. Um, happy to take the 15 bucks an hour. So I think the reality is we're in a global environment. If unions can emphasize productivity and voice things and do positive things, I think we, we see a future. As you move to full employment, that's true. But, the, but in a sense, think about strikes. If unions are weak, they can't strike. You go out and strike and the employer just says, fine, goodbye, you're fired. Um, so the, the reality is globalization has minimized the the power of unions, but unions are going to get there, can be able to come back if they can show positive aspects for workers. And firms would like it. I mean, this is, firms can say, right, we'll, we'll work with you, we'll, we'll do productivity things together. And we can see that, you know, this is a real positive to the, to the workers. I mean, it's, if the union could, a million workers, in America, a million workers go by health insurance, much cheaper than an individual do it. They might be able to get around all the nonsense by states. If unions could do that sort of stuff. So I think the answer is they got to go and emphasize voice. And if that's going to give them a future, because if not, the employers are going to come after them. And, but it, the balance will shift if you move to full employment. But I don't see it as a long run shift. Mm. Um, it's, it's very pertinent to me because I've just uh, finished marking a set of essays on the relationship between trade unions and productivity. Right. So, and the answer, so the answer is that it's an we don't know which what relationship ought to be. It's an empirical fact. We have to just go out and look. And what was it, what's the answer? What did the students say? Um, mainly, they got around 65, so... Uh, they, they, <laughs> <laughs> um, that was the average mark. Uh, what did they say? Did well, they most, of them, most, of them, most of them actually mark? sided with the, uh, the argument that unions had a negative impact on productivity. But they don't but, have to. But they don't was, have to. The, I mean, yeah. the point of the story is they could have a negative, they could have a positive, and it looks in the data that they have a negative impact on productivity. Well, if you want to come in there and say, right, we're going to help the employer, we're all in this together, and the employer's prepared to share, then it's going to work. But if you if you have a negative effect on productivity, the, the employer's going to come after you. So it's about, I think that's the way, that's the future. It's funny, because we didn't teach them there was a negative effect. So oh, is that right? <laughs> they must have read, they must have read some of this stuff. Um, yeah. Well, actually, I mean, that brings me to the question of productivity, actually, because, right. I mean, with the industrial strategy and suddenly this more intervention or before people got slightly sidetracked by uh, the big looming B word um, in, the, in, the, in the government agenda, trying to engage with the productivity challenge or the productivity puzzle. Um, you've written widely about the relationship between productivity and employment um, right. in the book as well. Um, I mean, what are the prospects for solutions to Britain's productivity well, malaise? That, that, it's a puzzle. Yeah, right? It's a puzzle, I mean, I think yeah. if you look in the data, it's a very... It's very simple to look at the data, and you can date it. You can date the day that productivity collapsed, and it was the day that a budget came in 2010 which imposed austerity. So essentially the public sector in a recession slashes investment, right? Um, and that has a big, a big impact. I mean, Osborne argued that the private sector, the public sector crowds out the private sector. If you have less of the public sector, more of the private sector. Unfortunately, he got it wrong. He got the word wrong. It wasn't out, it was in. So in a recession, so I live in a place at Dartmouth. Dartmouth is a rich American university. And I, I kind of give you this story. So in the good times, 
and Dartmouth building. But the last thing you want is bloody Dartmouth building. I can't get a plumber for love nor money. Dartmouth's got all the plumbers. The price of them has gone up to 300 bucks an hour. So you don't want Dartmouth building in, a, in the good times because they're crowding out the private sector because Dartmouth's doing this nonsense. But think about in the bad times. In the bad times, <coughs> Losbourne got it completely right. He cut public spending. What did Keynes say? Keynes told him to do the opposite. And it turns out the productivity puzzle... I mean, productivity was rising nicely from the, from the depth of the recession through around the end of 2010. Give it a little time lag. And productivity has remained flat ever since. And actually, in the last three quarters, it's actually gone negative. So all the stories that the Bank of England has been telling us and the OBR has been telling us every quarter since 2010 that productivity is going to take off. Right. So again, they got it wrong. You should have had the word not take <laughs> off. So there's a major productivity puzzle. So workers are insecure. They don't see a reason to work with firms. Firms are basically just hiring people in an insecure way and they're not investing. Investment's been falling a lot, falling, fallen by a big chunk in the last quarter and falling in previous quarters. So if you're not investing in firms, you're not investing in people, you're not, you're not making employment secure, and you have uncertainty in the air because of Brexit and a, 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 right, a, a potential global trade war, then productivity is toast, and that's where we are. But I would date it in the UK to exactly the day that I call him Slasher Osborne, came in and slashed everything and destroyed productivity and basically killed off the growth. The growth, actually, between 2008 and 2010 was almost exactly the growth path of every other recovery you've ever seen in the UK since 1945. So you know, I can show you it very easily. Here's the growth paths, and it's going like this, and then you get to 2010, it does that. Well, guess what? It's timed exactly at the point where um, slash is slashed. So I would say the answer is we need infrastructure spending, we need the end of austerity, we need to invest in people and places, and then you'll start to see productivity rising, and firms will see that, the, that everybody's in it together, and then you'll see output start to rise again and workers say, ha-ha, I'm going to gain from this, the, the, this, this, this improvement. But I think the idea that you, that you slash public spending in a, in a recession, uh, and they called it actually a contractionary fiscal expansion. <laughs> I mean, come on, that's what they wrote. That's what, that's what Osborne said we're going to do. We're going to slash spending so there'll be an increase in spending. And I, I wrote several columns in the, in the New Statesman and I said, no, what you've got is a contractionary, <laughs> a contractionary contraction, if you like, a fiscal contraction driven by, by further contraction. So it wasn't uh, an, ex, uh, an expansionary fiscal contraction, it was a contractionary fiscal contraction. And that's what we've had. And I would say, and, I, and, I, and I've tried to say to people, if you keep telling us how great everything is, and the book talks a lot about it, I mean, there's a sort of disconnect between what the world what the world is and what people say. So let's try this. We've never we've never we've all we're all in this together. Oh laugh. You're allowed to laugh, you're supposed to laugh, right? We're all in this together. So let me give you some data. Let me try this data. We actually have a there's a great data farm now. Lots of economic historians have been working on what they call a millennium of data. So you could actually go to the Bank of England and you can get data from um, from the year a thousand. Right, you can you can get this data. So I, of course, have got to this data. So here's the deal. So so the government says how great it is and how great the recovery is. And I always fall about laughing. So try this on you. There have there have only ever been 
two slower recoveries than this. This is the slowest recovery in 300 years. The last one that was slower was the South Sea bubble. And the one before that was the Black Death. I'm serious. So I had, <laughs> I, I had a series of conversations with people about, um, in fact, there was, a, there was a thought that, in fact, the, um, the, the summer, the, 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 hang on, the, the year of 1850, what did they say, which was the, the year there was no summer, where there was um, the, 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 the volcano erupted in, in, in the biggest eruption in 1300 years in, in, in Asia. And it was the year without a summer. And there was, um, the crops were terrible and people died. Turns out, this was worse. This recovery was worse than that. So the great, great year of 1850, the, the Black Death was worse. But this in the data is the, is the worst recovery in 300 years. And people tell you how great it is. I'm allowed to stand up and say, this book tells you the truth. I've got the data and the data says that's just not true. The slowest recovery in 300. We've never seen also in the, in the records that we have in that, in that database, goes back 200 years. It's the worst recovery in wages since records were kept 200 years ago. So no wonder people are hurting, but the policymakers keep telling you it's fine. Things are fine. We're at full employment. Well, this, I just think we should, this book tries to talk to ordinary people about, well, here's the facts, folks. This is what's going on. We talk to people, we look at what's going on in the data, and we cut through the BS. And the answer is quite different. Sir, so, I, hang on, the guy at the back, I just pointed. I didn't, it's not that, I just didn't see you. Till, so okay. Do you mind if I, I ask didn't, I didn't see him either. Sorry. Go, you go, then you go, go, sorry. Uh, do, you think there's, do you think they really believed that policy? Or is there some other reason? Because... Yeah, to me, it's just it doesn't make any sense. That... Well, well, I sat, I sat on these committees, and I said what you said, right? It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I don't know how to answer it. I mean, it, I mean, in a sense, I always get these questions, which are, well, is it just that they're stupid? I don't know the answer to it, but the problem is that the evidence is consistent with that. I don't know the answer. I mean, I mean, Mervyn King went and said you've got to go and do this. And Osborne says the evidence is great that we've got to we've got to do this and it's all going to be great. And there were people who've been writing this stuff. I, I, I guess you'll have to ask them, but it's consistent with the fact that Thomas Rocks. Sorry, <laughs> you go. So, I agree with the general premise that Osborne made a mistake in the way they implemented austerity. But when you're talking about recovery, are you overemphasizing <clears throat> reaching a previous high point? Because if you made a comparison, say, to Italy. And did over 20 years, Italy's been stagnated. They might not have dropped as far, but it's right. stagnated for two decades. No, no, so you could, Japan. Yeah, yeah, you could certainly say that um, other countries have had slower recoveries. I think it's appropriate in the case of the UK to look at UK past recoveries. I mean, I think, and I think there's things you could have done. I think after 2010, once you've done it, once you see that the data wasn't doing what you thought, you probably should have come back and done something about it, right? Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I think that's probably more... I mean, if you, I think the Labour Party in 2010 might well have done not that differently. I mean, they started to raise VAT earlier. I take the view, I mean, knowing lots of them, I take the view that they probably would have, you know, cranked the handle back a bit because they saw how much hurt there was. I mean, we're still talking today about... I mean, they're still talking today about doing more austerity. I mean, the one thing we know in the literature, and I've written it, lots of others have, the one thing we know is austerity didn't work. That's, it was reckless from the start and didn't work. So then plan B, 
Plan B, I mean, in a sense, in a sense, Theresa May is talking about plan B, which is actually give away money, do the opposite, right? I mean, that's where you kind of are. Should have done that a year, several years ago, um, once the economy slow, slowed in the way. That, but you're making a valid point. Other countries, of course, have been uh, recovered more slowly. They have t- Italy has 10% unemployment rates. Um, but I think, I think a reasonable comparator is actually not just the UK, but the UK's growth path from 2008 at the bottom to 2010. That growth path seems a pretty good one to look at. And you were on a nice growth path and then you killed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was just a question about what we're recovering back to. Because, I mean, there was a reason that there was a crash, wasn't there, which was that it, it was really quite good unsustainable. Point. So really good point. Should we try to get back to that or should we be trying to get something that's more sustainable? I think, can I, can I answer that? That's a great question. I mean, obviously, the, the, in fact, we've, I've been talking about that the last few days. I mean, you certainly might think, right, that the years 2004 to 2008 are not things we can get back to because, but let's just, let's think about why that's relevant. We probably, people probably should have seen the Great Recession coming, given what you've said. I mean, think about where Northern Rock was. Northern Rock went to the northeast of England and opened branches there and started giving loans to people who couldn't get loans from other banks. They're up there and we started to see unsustainable loans and, and your point is well taken. If you think about house price to earnings ratios, I mean, when I, when I first went for a mortgage in Britain, the number I always had in my head was like, you put down some money and you got three to three and a half times what you, what you earned, right? That was, what, that was, I don't know if it was three, it was something like that, right? And all the story for the last hundred years is when that ratio starts to rise, trouble's coming, right? So it goes to four and you go, oh, Lord, and you get to five and what, you know what's coming? Well, exactly what you said was coming, and in London, we were at 11, and we got to sort of six and a half, seven by the end of 2007. So A, what you said is true, but I think that's a really good reason why people should have spotted the Great Recession was coming. That was not sustainable, right? We were loaning money to people that we shouldn't have been lending it to. And, that's, and, in, and in a sense, Northern Rock went down for that reason. So I take thoroughly that point you said, but I think that, that is the, the explanation, and endlessly I've heard from other people at the bank, you should never have expected economists to have seen this great recession. And who could possibly have known it was coming? I always put my hand up and said, well, I did. But, but the answer was, I mean, I think, I think your point is right. That, that, that pre-recession years was unsustainable. But I think people should have spotted it. I mean, if you look back at the time, people knew this was not going to, this could not carry on. <laughs> A house price to earnings ratio that high. As soon as Northern Rock went, Northern Rock was an indicator. Northern Rock was in the wholesale money markets, couldn't get money. Well, that meant Alliance and Leicester and Bradford and Bingley were bound to go after them, bound to go. So once Northern Rock had gone, the world was collapsing around you. So I think that's a great question, but I think it says to people, and, it's, and it means that policymakers who say excuse always say to me, nobody could have known that it was going to happen. And we couldn't have done anything about it. Well, the people knew. If you, if you looked at the data, people in this room knew that this was uh, trouble was coming. Because trouble in the past had always come when that happened. Do you agree with that? Thank you. Good question. Sir? Actually, I think... Oh, oh, oh sorry. Okay. To the next question. Hi. Hello. Uh, you haven't mentioned the A word, automation. Um, yeah. I suppose I'm kind of interested in yeah. an awful lot of things that happen to the sort of work we do. Mm-hmm. And that perhaps that is another reason we can't just go mm-hmm. back. Um, and the only other thing I'd say is I trained as a planner in the 1980s and one of the things we used to obsess about was what everyone was going to do with their extra leisure time. 
Less. Oh, they're going to earn for their mortgages. Yes, yes, I yes. Mean, yeah. What's yes. gone wrong? Well, I mean, I think obviously automation is a big deal. I mean, I remember the Luddites who asked the same question, right? They were all worried about capital. I mean, I mean, I'm an economist. I'm a labour economist. I care about um, capital labour things. So here's a here's a, and a big part of the story that I talk about in the book. Is I, I want us to encourage jobs. I want to encourage people to work. I want to give them incentives to work. I mean, I've got two daughters. One's got three kids under two, and one's got two under two. And basically, they really want to work. For the life of them, poor dears, they can't afford childcare. The childcare is, you know, basically, they, they work for negative, right? Um, so incentives to work are a big thing. But think about automation. People haven't thought of it this way. So if I was to subsidize labor... Automation comes because the relative price of capital is low. It's low. It's cheaper to put in capital than it is to hire people. But a central part of policy is we could subsidize work. His story, he studies work, right? So the answer is it's actually about the relative price of labor compared to capital. And the other thing we know, look around the high streets. There's lots of automation and digital things that actually incredibly incredible job creators think of laptops and cell phones and all that stuff. So I think you're right that automation's an issue, but I think you can deal with it by thinking about, well, we care more about people than we do about machines. Um, and th so think about in coal, say. Um, the problem, say, Trump says let's bring back coal. If the price of coal was to double, employment would likely fall. Because they're just gone by machines. Because the machine is cheaper, right? So it's about the relative price of things. And I think you can deal with a lot of it through that. And you can use it to enhance employment. So I'm a great fan of thinking about technology as a way of creating jobs. Can we think about ways of creating jobs that will make life better? And maybe in the end, as you say, use it as a way to lower your hours. But at the moment... At the moment, there's too many people who want more hours. And remember, it's something interesting. This underemployment thing, I should have said, it's not under... If you say to people, would you like more hours at 700 bucks an hour? It's not that. It, the question we ask these people is, at your going wage, whatever that is, you know, you're paid 15 quid an hour. At 15 quid an hour, would you like more? I mean, clearly, if you say to people, what about at 50? So the answer still is that people want more. Down the road, I think we'll worry about less, but I'm... I'm less worried about automation. I think we can deal with it by giving people in firms incentives to hire people through the tax system. Give people incentives. Give 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 incentives to my kids to actually. I mean, they desperately want to go back to work, but they have they can't afford the childcare. So you can you can basically subsidise the childcare, which gives them an incentive to work. You can't you can't automate childcare, as far as I can tell. Right? You can't automate haircuts. There's lots of things. So what we've seen is a huge growth in. In, in things around that automation. So, I don't know, that's the best I can do, but I think it's a pretty, it's a pretty good answer, I think. Oh, the gentleman here, I have pointed there. Yeah, shall, shall I take a round of questions? Or do I don't mind. Carry on just one, let's one, one. try, and no, I no, pointed no, it. Yeah. My, question, yeah. my question is, there's obviously a disconnect that you've outlined very well between the people who are hurting at the bottom of the pyramid right. and the self-satisfied smug right. ones at the top who are rather reluctant to admit that they've made a hash of it. Now, mm -hmm. uh, my guess is this self-selected audience will all rush out and buy your book, but the people in the car plants that are not closing, that are closing, are not going to buy books because that's not the way right. they work. So my question is about the media and the role right. of journalism and the media in explaining this disconnect 
that you've explained to us very neatly tonight, but apparently is not grasped in the greater political discussion? Uh, I mean, a great, a great question. I, I don't quite know how, how that information is spread. Let me, let me give you a story about what I've been doing. I've been over here trying to think about ways to promote this book. And um, people, I've, I've actually been doing lots of podcasts Turns out people start to listen, starting to listen to podcasts. When I, I, I didn't really know what they were, but I kind of do now. But um, it's actually quite a useful way. That turns out to be a, a different way. Through them, you can just go and you know, download this podcast, stick it on your phone, and listen to it on the bus. Um, I, I agree that media is a is a big deal. I mean, I think there's a story about I, I, Alan Brusbridge. Is that used to be the editor of the Guardian, and he said, "Think about in the past, pretty much in the past." If you read something in a newspaper, I mean, when I write things, when I write this book, Princeton University Press, you write this book, the first line, they go and check everything. You write a number down and they check it. So you've got a book from Princeton University Press. It means that, you know, I made up kibosh and they found it. So that's a, that was a sort of indicated to you that this was the truth. Part of the reason of a university press is that it gets approved by the panel. They look at it and say, he's not talking tosh. Um, so that's what happened. You read the Times, you read the Telegraph. There was a sub-editor that checked everything. The problem with what you talked about is think about the news that people get. All that Russians hacked into bots. You don't. People don't know that actually a fact is a fact. And now we have a problem. So, but people say, well, maybe these podcasts and other things essentially are a way of, of the being account. I don't know what the word is. It's like a filter. But I think it's a really big deal that you say that people want to try and understand what's the truth. And a part of the story, of course, is that Exports completely screwed up. I mean, think about economists. They missed the greatest recession in 100 years. I've got to tell you a quick story. A friend of mine is the, is the vice chancellor of the University of Exeter. And he said this is the greatest thing that ever happened to his field. And his field was international relations. And he said, now you guys are the biggest screw-ups ever. Because guess what the field of international relations missed? The fall of the Berlin Wall. <laughs> and he said, now you're the suckers. Now you're the worst guys. <laughs> Sorry. Next question. It's, it's the woman here. Thank you. Thank you. We started off talking about beverage and full employment. Yes, yes. And I think one has to remember that beverage was talking about full-time male employment. I, I, I understand that. very firmly that once married, women had, quotes other duties. In other words, they should not be in paid employment. So we've moved from the notion of the family wage right. and the, 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 the man working uh, uh, to support his family to the individual citizen wage yes, worker. Yes. But we haven't really taken into account what it was that women were doing in the home in terms of childcare and looking after Absolutely. increasingly older yeah. people and so on. It seems yeah. to me there's a huge issue of, yes. about that. And I think um, connected to that is you, you talked about your your daughters and not being able to afford childcare. Yeah. Well, or a house, but that helps, right? <laughs> yeah. But one of the things it seems to me that's also happened, particularly since 2010, is that it's not just money wages that have gone down. Yes. What Tawny called our social income, yes. Barbara yes. Castle called the social wage, right. has also gone down. Right. So two little examples. In the 1970s, primary school children, could, over 90% of them could go to school unaccompanied by an adult. Right. So there was not a problem about fetching right. and carrying Right, right, kids. right, because it was safe. Yes, exactly. Right. And the other thing that's happened, because we, we're losing parks and play spaces and safe pavements even, that there was no difference in the early, in the, in the mid-60s mm -hmm. between 
children of any income group having access to safe yes. play space. Yes. Now the difference between rich and poor is five times. So it seems to me we also have to think about when we look at what's happening to employment um, and of course the growth of part-time employment for women. We've got to look at the social income. Can I buy everything of that and agree with that? Um, my daughters always tell me, and I, well I just do what my daughters tell me, and my, my wife does too, and they always say to me, what's going to fix all this is girl power. I mean, I'm happy with that. But let me, let me say, I completely agree with that. And I think in the book, I do say it applies to women as well. But actually, what, what's good for, in this sense is I have a chapter on exactly that. And I talk about um, trust and um, feelings of the community. And do, how, how, how many times last week did you talk to a neighbour? That kind of stuff. I mean, Richard Putnam, Putnam had this stuff all about bowling alone, right? And so we've actually seen this... This breaking of society's breaking of the society breaking of society's bonds, and I talk in the book about that and try to think about maybe ways that we can put that together. I'll give you a little example. So it turns out there's work being done on people's attitudes to immigration. Turns out that you go out and you ask people questions, and it turns out that I mean, you see in America, for example, you say, um, "Is the, what? Tell me about the crime rate. Is the crime rate of indigenous population?" higher or lower than that of immigrants or non-immigrants. And they always say the crime rate of immigrants much higher than that of the indigenous population. Completely untrue. It's, it's the other way around. So what, the, what people show, are starting to show is that you can actually go and talk to people and explain things to them, and you can actually get attitudinal change when you give them information. But I think you're absolutely right. The breaking of the, the bonds in society, breaking of trust. So I have The good thing is, as you'll like it, there's lots of stuff in the book at the end where I literally talk about... Um, Putnam and I mean, there's charts in here about um, changes of trust and how you how you try and improve that. So I so I I'm completely mindful of what you say, and the great thing is there's lots of stuff in there about it. But yeah, I I completely agree with that. I mean, it does take time, and it does yes, building trust takes time, and absolutely. you have to have places where you meet people to. Uh, I agree with that. Well, think about what austerity did. I mean, I sort of think the way to fix it. I mean, I, can I do my? I mean, I really think it's a big deal. So think about what are you going to do about the Yorkshire coal town, right? You're going to do about Wakefield that voted, sorry, that voted for Brexit. But what's Brexit going to bring? This is so. So think of what 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 could you do? Well, you could actually go in there and start to build the things you said, build a sense of community. You close the swimming pool, you close the community centre, you took out the police. And the school hasn't... So, so basically, you go back in and you start to say, let's try and build a community here. Let's try and... The and probably as you build it, there are jobs for the people in the community to build the community. And you start to do that. And so that's an obviously sensible way. But we haven't got time for it, but I completely agree with that. <laughs> and we have just... We have three questions here, conveniently situated next to one another. <laughs> and if you could just keep them quite concise, because we're, we're running... We're, we're getting towards the end of time. Um. You said several times that you were a data, describe yourself as a data. Oh, yeah. And, and um, Sorry, we'll exactly. probably go over there, Moran, um, uh, talked about the disconnect. And I think there's a, there's a I'm a researcher myself, there's a massive mm -hmm. disconnect. We see it in our politicians all the time mm -hmm. between the facts and, and the sort of as they see things. We've seen it just recently with the UN Rapporteur on Poverty. Yeah, and absolutely. Don't know it's 40 million people, but that's not a problem. I don't recognise them. I don't recognise it. So I just, I'm not sure where we. We keep, as researchers, we keep churning out more evidence, more data, but it's not, it's not being heard. It's well, almost like yeah. we might as well be speaking yeah. in the can, can I respond to that? I mean, I, I completely agree with that. Um, so I, I was on the show this week with Andrew Neil, 
and we were talking about Brexit. And I said, this is kind of interesting, it's just facts against emotional, I don't want to hear. I said, um, the problem about a US, sorry, a, a, prob a problem about a US-UK trade deal, as Nancy Pelosi this week has said, there will be no US-UK trade deal um, if the Brexiteers mess with the Irish peace accords. And the person on the panel next to me said, we don't care what some random American politician said. <laughs> and I said, well, it seems to me the only question is whether she's the most powerful woman in the world or the second most, right? We can have a conversation, right? And I said, there will be no US-UK trade deal if Nancy Pelosi says there won't be one. And the person looked at me like I was bonkers. I mean, you know, how am I doing? And then we went to the, the politician to the left of me said, Real wages are rising. And I said, sorry, let me burst your bubble. They're falling. So he said, well, investment is obviously rising. And I said, well, actually, it's falling. You know, what are you, I mean, what are you going to do? I'm, I'm the professor. I know the answer. The data is that it's falling. So he says it's rising. I mean, at some point, I don't know what we do. I mean, maybe I shouldn't go on those programs. But, it was, but what do you think when someone says Nancy Pelosi is a random American politician? <laughs> well, Donald Trump is one. So. Well, I know. But, but, but basically, he's fighting with her, right? I mean, that's where we are. She will determine this thing about the, 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 the trade deal with Mexico. It's not about Mexico. It's not about Trump. It's about whether Nancy Pelosi is going to pass it. But I mean, I, well, so go back to his question. Was the woman just simply dumb? Was she dumb, didn't know who Nancy Pelosi was, or what? I mean, Nancy Pelosi, random America. I mean, my thought was, I was going to sit there and say, you can argue it's, it's Merkel or Pelosi. One, you know, it's either one and two, right? We're probably, you and I, you can choose what I can choose. It doesn't matter, right? Sorry, go. Uh, I was interested that somebody over there described George Osborne as having made a mistake. I don't think George Osborne made a mistake. I he meant it was to. A deliberate attack. Yeah, on yeah. You could argue that. And and the interesting thing is that though the Tory Brexiteers and Trump agree about a number of things, Trump is actually rather dependent on working class votes. I agree with that. And that's why I agree he with has that. been protectionist and uh, interested in tariffs mm -hmm. and all of that kind of stuff. Whereas mm -hmm. the agenda in this country has been a much more free market, open up the, the market to competition. And I think it was a deliberate and systematic attack on the working class. I don't disagree with that. I mean, I mean, if you read columns that I wrote in the New Statesman and the Independent, I said that an awful lot. That's why I called him Slasher. And um, I mean, I, and I think it was a deliberate, I mean, I think austerity was a reckless, deliberate attempt to make the poor poorer. I mean, I agree with that. Well, okay. You, I mean, we we're basically agreed. We're just playing semantics here, right? Is the word vicious, or you know, we're, you know, the fight's over. We've just we've agreed, right? I mean, I, I don't disagree with you. And you probably don't disagree with me. So let's go to the next question. <laughs> Thank you. This kind of goes back rather to the thing about community, yeah, and about the nature of work, because as well as people demanding more hours, yes. it seems to me that there are also people who'd rather like less hours. And less there are people like that. There are people like that too. Yes. Place, but though, but all those things are in the nature of work at the moment, and those kinds of um, the interference of work in the rest of your life stops. Can, 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 yeah. Can I can I answer that a little bit? So I have a big piece in the book about that. So think about retired folk. So I'll just try this. Okay. So you thought that your house was worth quite a lot, and you had a nice pension and you were going to be able to retire, right? So then the recession comes along and the world has changed and you can't retire and you're doing some self-employed job. And in my data, it turns out two things are true. There's lots of retired folk who say, I would like to work 
less hours than I am. And in fact, I'd like to be able to work none, but I can't, right? And then the second thing is relates to what you said. In my data, I do lots of stuff about well-being. The underemployed are unhappy, but so are those folks yeah. too, because the recession destroyed yeah. their dreams, right? Yeah. I mean, in some sense, what's happened? So think of this. The old want to work less and the young want to work more, but neither are desperately happy about the situations that they're in. So there ought to be rooms for trade and so on. But it just means, and I, and I like to think of this, think, as an economist, I think about what I call optimizing behavior, right? So if you get to full employment, workers can choose what they want, right? There's lots of jobs going around. The overemployed can say, well, I can find a job with three hours a week, not 26 and so on. And so that's an indicator we're not at full employment. But you have all these, and you, it's a well-raised point. There are underemployed people who are unhappy, there are overemployed people who would have preferred to retire. I mean, they're happy that they work and happy they're healthy. But the truth was they thought they were going to retire at 65. I mean, this lawsuit with the women, the, the reality is that they thought they were going to retire at 60. And then they suddenly get told that they're going to retire at 65. Whether you think it's a good idea or not, or whether it should happen or not, the problem is their expectations were altered. They thought they were going to do this. And then you change it and it makes them unhappy. So so that's a lot of what we see. These, these society things, I mean, people, Depression's been rising like crazy. Anxiety's rising. We have to do something about it. Um, and 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 going back to, I mean, think of what the what this, these Tory candidates are doing. I don't hear any of them talking about how am I going to deal with uh, loneliness and homelessness and you know hurt. Right? That's your point. And I and I, you know, we're just talking about you know, are the tax cuts going to go to billionaires or lots of millionaires or bits of millionaires? They're not about Wakefield. Right, and they're not about Doncaster. They're not about the. They're not about Merthyr Tidville. Probably not about Bristol. That's the disconnect. Yeah. And the book's all about that. <laughs> so I try. <laughs> and that seems like a, a fitting place to end. Thanks very much for your excellent questions, and thanks to Danny for uh, for his Thank excellent you. answers.